Amen. Turn around and say hello to someone tonight. So glad that folks have come out. And uh, the weather has uh, helped us out a little bit. It, it's not as bad as it has been. Say so you're a, an optimist preacher. And uh, I still prefer the summer weather that other people don't prefer. Uh, some of you say, oh, I prefer it. I just prefer air conditioning. But uh, anyway... All right, so you've got, uh, you've got natural air conditioning right now out there, near freezing weather every day, but it's a little warmer, and praise the Lord for that. And uh, thank God we're able to come out. Don't, uh, don't miss any of the great activities now. The rest of this week, uh, be online with us from the Shepherd of the Sheep. On Saturday, I would ask you uh, to come out and help us clean at 9 a.m. Visitation on Saturday. Uh, we've got new forms, we've got packets of material, seed to Quan, and get organized, get coordinated, and let's start inviting people. Let's start building those bus routes and building up those Sunday school classes. Come on now, we need to do that, praise the Lord. And uh, then Sunday be out for the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Don't miss an opportunity. Make sure you're reading your Bible through, and we're doing... Uh, two chapters in the Old, one in the New, Monday through Saturday. On Sundays, three chapters in the Old Testament and two in the New. And if you're keeping up, you know where you are, folks. You're in Exodus and Mark's Gospel. And uh, moving on, moving forward and reading through the Bible this year. Praise the Lord. All right. Also, don't forget, we have a date to mark down. There will be a sign-up to go around, not this week, but the following week. For the Beast Feast, we need an interest sign-up. Those planning and coming and bringing visitors want to see you sign up. Those that want to compete, it's on March the 5th, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That's a Saturday. Bring out the men and the boys, and uh, they'll be shooting bows, and they'll be competing in fly casting. And then at 4 o'clock, we have a wonderful meal. Venison and other game meat prepared uh, many, many different ways. Wonderful Wonderful tasting cuisine and a great, uh, great decorations and a great program, a message from the Word of God and awards to be handed out and door prizes. Don't miss out on it. Men and boys, come out on the 5th of, uh, of February, excuse me, of March, and, uh, and uh, we want to be prepared for that. So start inviting people, all right? And ladies and men, if you would prepare food, uh, we'll have a sign-up for that. We need side dishes and desserts as well. I've followed competitions uh, through the years. I, I have been a, a student of, of athletic records. I remember when I was a little boy, this will date me, my dad or my big brother then, I'm not sure which, handed down to me a very used, very well-read copy of baseball records up to that time. Now, this would have been in the 1950s. So there had been none of the steroid users and none of the new records that were set. At that time, Babe Ruth's home run record was standing, but there was a young man uh, that was moving up uh, through the ranks and uh, would eventually uh, break that record, and uh, others would come behind. And so I was aware of, it was in the DiMaggio and the Willie Mays eras of time, and I knew, I knew the pitching records, the batting averages. For example, highest batting average ever attained uh, 
in a full season of play. Ty Cobb. At least in modern times. If you go back into the 1800s, you can find some others. And um, highest batting average that never won a championship. Shoeless Joe Jackson. All right? And, he, you know, he got kicked out of baseball. We don't know if it was just or, or unjust, but his team threw the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal. Now, I knew all about those things when I was a little kid. I'm talking uh, about Sam's age, my, our grandson Sam, about his age. I read all those things. I would, I, would, I would smuggle that thing into the bedroom, and by night I would read it under the covers. And, and I knew all those things. I was, I was a student of competitions. Who won the World Series? What year they skipped the World Series? They did so back in the early 1900s because the American League refused to play the National League. They, they had such fierce competition. That actually happened. There were times when they would play eight games instead of seven. And I don't know how you get best of eight. But anyway, they played eight full and somebody won five and lost three. So uh, it was, it was uh, those kinds of things that I learned coming up. And I, and I absorbed all of that. Don't tell me a kid can't learn those things. They know those kinds of things. And I, I learned those. And I observed from afar as records are being set. And I remember the 1960 and the 1964 Olympics. And you uh, can't watch the Olympics anymore and still be a good sanctified Christian. But back in those days, we could watch the Olympics. And uh, we, we enjoyed uh, Americans doing well uh, in all different competitions. I particularly followed boxing competitions. And I, I could tell you throughout the 1960s just about who boxed who, when, and who won and who lost and what was the... Uh, was it by knockout or TKO or was it by points? And, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And there were, were always, you know, this kind of advertising uh, that would go out. The kind of advertising that would go out would be so-and-so versus so-and-so. The, the United States Olympic hockey team versus the USSR 1960, almost as exciting as 1980. Some exciting things happened those years for the United States hockey team. Usually we were out, pointed out, numbered out, hustled, uh, beat up by the pros that the communists put out. Uh, those days we played actual amateurs against their pros. But it was always somebody versus somebody. Ali versus everybody else in the world, all right? Muhammad Ali versus... Joe Frazier, all right, as Howard Cosell used to say. Uh, and, and all of those, those competitions, so-and-so versus so-and-so. Tonight, we're going to look at Jesus Christ versus false teaching. Jesus Christ versus false teaching. Our study comes from the book of Colossians. We have uh, been in this for some time. This book was written by the Apostle Paul from prison, the founding pastor of the church at Colossae, which was in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, was Epaphras. He had gone to visit the Apostle Paul, who could take visitors at that time, and he was explaining the problem. The people at Colossae were very intelligent. They were, they were well-to-do people, but they had started to mix error with truth and a variety of of erroneous teachings had begun to creep into the church. And what that will do is that will suck 
the spiritual life and vitality out of your people and out of the church and the work of the Lord. We're beginning at Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Let's pray. Father, fill me now with the Holy Spirit. I pray that these things that may seem to be a little obscure or difficult to understand may become clear and we might be able to apply the truth uh, as we think of Jesus Christ versus false teaching in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We know that when Jesus Christ is pit against any foe uh, versus anyone or anything, Jesus Christ wins. And because we're identified with Jesus Christ, we win in the end. But along the way, there is a struggle. There are people who will not put Jesus Christ exclusively in the driver's seat of their life. And consequently, they're going to have a bumpy road and they're going to have problems uh, keeping it between the lines. Their life is going to be rough. Their, uh, their trips into the ditch and then getting pulled back out and getting back on the road again and, and heading uh, on the journey that God has laid out for them is going to be difficult because Jesus Christ is not in the driver's seat. He's not the preeminent one. He's not the one who is in charge. He's just there uh, and, and they consider him to be uh, an advisor or a last resort, someone that they go to when they get themselves in a fix and they can't get themselves out. Maybe I've just described you or somebody that you know that professes to be a Christian. They want Jesus Christ whenever they really get in a deep fix, a deep problem. But un until that happens, they're going to go along on their own and uh, use their own uh, natural abilities, their talents, uh, uh, their skills, popular opinion, the advice and, and uh, the directions given to them by others, logic, etc., etc., that's the worst way to conduct one's life. The only way that wins for the Christian, the one who professes to be saved, is to sell out lock, stock, and barrel totally and completely from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet and give yourself completely to God for His guidance and direction moment by moment. I mean every second of every day of every week of every year of every decade of your life. That's the only way to win and be successful. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be like the waves of the sea. It's going to be hit and miss. It's going to be, you know, kind of like, uh, have you ever gone bowling and you're not too good at it? And so they got these, these helps for kids. They, they put, they put uh, things down the alleys. You know what I'm talking about? By the gutter. And so if you're good at, uh, at you know, at bank shots, uh, you can throw that thing down anywhere. If you throw it hard enough, it's going to bang, bing, 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 bing. It's going to hit something. And you're going to knock down some pins. Unfortunately, you're never going to make it in the national bowling tour with those there. You've got to get rid of those. And you've got to be able to keep that ball out of the gutter and, and hit some pins and hopefully hit a lot of pins and knock them all down. That's the object. That's the metaphor that I'm using in your Christian life, in your marriage, in your child rearing, in your business uh, life. We were, we were talking with our younger son. We do every day. We have prayer and, and we enjoy conversation. And uh, 
uh, we were talking about something, and I threw out the word acumen with regard to business uh, ability. And I used the word acumen, and my wife, with tongue-in-cheek, said very dryly, said, now that's a word we're going to use today, every one of us, acumen. But um, uh, a lot of people like to fall back on their experience or their training. They might have a master's in business administration, and they believe that, that they are God's gift to business. So they're the next uh, they're the next tycoon on Wall Street or whatever, the great investment uh, person of the 21st century. And the truth of the matter is, whether it is your private personal life, professional life, uh, your, your uh, profession for Jesus Christ, whatever it may be, if Jesus Christ is not in the driver's seat, you're going to have problems. So Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. And if He is directing your life, there is going to be a spiritual sensitivity. If you're in the Word of God, and we should be every day, the Holy Spirit is going to bring things to our remembrance. How many of you can recall a time in your life when the Holy Spirit brought up a verse, a portion of a verse, uh, something from the Scriptures that you had read or something you had heard taught or preached? Raise your hands. How many can remember that? Yes. Zing, just like that. And that's, that's the concept of meditating in the Word day and night. You see, you can't read the Bible day and night because you've got to sleep. Most people need about eight hours, somewhere in there. Sleep, when you're younger and healthier, you might get by with less. But when you get to, to a, a point in your life, you're going to find that it takes nine, eight hours, seven hours, something like that, to go from day to day. Otherwise, you're going to be running on fumes. You can't, you can't read the Bible 24 hours a day. You'll burn out. So what does it mean to meditate uh, in the law day and night? Psalm 1. That means to chew the cud, like, like the cow who's got four stomachs, and you see Bossy out there in the middle of a clearing, and there's no grass around, and she's chewing. Where'd that come from? It came from one of her four stomachs. She brought it back up, and she's chewing on it. Now, that may seem gross to you, but when you take in the Word of God, it goes down into your spirit, and when you need it, as you're going along in life, all of a sudden, bing, the Holy Spirit brings it up. And you got that scripture. And you may be a great memorizer, but you may not have a great memory. And you can only credit the Holy Spirit. So there we have Jesus Christ in the driver's seat. Holy Spirit, bring into our memory those things. As we keep it between the lines, we're right, right down the middle. <laughs> Just keeping it between the gullies and keeping it between the gutters. Amen and going through life in every venue of our life. The people at Colossae didn't think that Jesus Christ was enough. I believe He is. He has proven Himself to be enough again and again and again. It is not only disrespectful not to think of Him that way, it's uh, downright stupid, excuse me. It is, it is one of the dumbest moves the people who profess to be saved ever make when they begin to trust in other philosophies, ideas, and things outside of what we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're looking at verse 16 where it says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Um, the man who became the president of Northwestern Bible College uh, after Dr. W.B. Riley passed on to glory, uh, 
wrote a book that I have in my library. It was personally signed by, by him and given to one of his students. And that student was my father who passed it on to me. And the title of the book is Shadow of Things to Come. Everything that God gave the Old Testament Hebrews in the way of ceremonies and rituals were shadows or signs or symbols of things to come. And they all pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And they got so filled up with and so occupied with these symbols, these things that were illustrations of Jesus who would come, that they began to actually focus on the symbols and the types and the shadows. And those became more important than the one that they, that, that they represent. So in Paul's time in the church of Colossae, some people had started pulling out some Old Testament things that were supposed to point to Jesus. And uh, they were focusing on those things, and they were trying to mix that with New Testament Christianity. Here, Paul is saying, don't let anybody judge you. And the word judge here means to pronounce a sentence. There are four different usages of the English word judge in the New Testament. And this one means put on the robes, call a person into the courtroom, and pronounce you know, the condemnation on them. And that's what people do figuratively. They will judge other people according to something like meat. Now, the whole concept of judging them on the basis of meat goes back to the conflict that they had back in 1 Corinthians. You remember when we studied this previously, that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and helping them to sort out some intrapersonal problems. There were schisms, there were splits in the church. Part of the church was comprised of people who had been Jewish and had become saved, had accepted Yeshua as personal Messiah and Savior. Some of them were pagans, there were Gentiles, who had worshipped false gods and had gotten saved, received Jesus Christ as Savior, and they were in the same church together. Now, so far, so good. But here's where it bumps up against each other. The pagans believed in offering a meat sacrifice to their false god. For example, they would, they would go down to the meat market that was right there next door to the, to the pagan altar or the pagan temple, and they would buy a porterhouse steak, and they would bring it in, and the, the heathen uh, priest would take that porterhouse steak and would offer it to the dead idols, which were, of course, uh, backed by you know, demons and demon powers. And supposedly the spirit of the porterhouse steak was what the demonic spirit, the idol, would eat. Then that same porterhouse steak that had simply been taken from the meat market goes back to the meat market. And now it's marked down because the spirit of it has been offered to the pagan idol. So instead of paying whatever, $15 an ounce or whatever it would be nowadays, $15, $15 a, a pound, excuse me, $20 a pound, I don't know what it is, $10 a pound, I have no idea. But uh, whatever that would be, it would now be half price, be $5 a pound. People who had been saved out of that thought that was abhorrent, and they stayed away from that meat market. But over here, these Jews who never, ever, ever in their life ever offered a stake to a demon, to an idol, knew that the meat was marked down. It was cheap over here at the, at the, at the market that was next door to the, to the pagan temple. 
So they would go in there. As they're going in to buy the $5 a pound special priced steak, guess who sees them go in there? The former pagan who is now a Christian, and they're brothers in Christ, and they go to the same church, but they don't get along now because, guess what? The Jew is buying the money meat, uh, the money cheap, and the pagan is stumbling over that. So Paul says, don't, don't go get the $5 steak if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. That's it. That's it. There's nothing in there that says, don't eat meat, or don't eat meat on Friday. It has to do with what causes your brother to stumble. You say, ah, oh, but I have liberty. Don't allow your liberty to become a stumbling block. We have liberty, but we want to go the extra mile. When we had Christian schools, sometimes we would play other Christian schools in sports, and their standards, uh, their clothing uniform standards, might be more strict than ours were. Now, we had good strict standards, don't get me wrong, but uh, always modesty, always appropriate, you know, what was good to play a sport in. And they might have different standards. We would always dress up to their standards so as not to make them stumble. Now, I'm sure that in some cases they would think of themselves as being far more advanced in their spiritual walk than we were. But you know what? When you get a group of people who are willing to dress more, whatever, according to their standard, so as not to offend them, to cause their brother to stumble or sister to stumble, that group's more spiritually advanced, in my opinion. And that's what we have to do. Don't, don't put in somebody's face that you go to a certain place or you do a certain thing with certain people and you have freedom to do that when you know that's going to make them stumble. I had a friend in Bible college who was saved late in life. He was a trucker. He'd been a hard drinker. He got saved, and God called him to preach at about 40 years of age. So he came to Bible college, and there I was at 20 years of age, and I knew this about him. Because he'd been saved out of that, he refused to eat in any restaurant that sold alcoholic beverages. I respected that. I respected that. Now, I'm against the, that very thing, but... His application was a personal one, and I did not want to injure my brother in Christ and cause him to stumble. I believe I hold a higher standard on the Word of God than some of my Baptist brethren. But when I am asked to go preach for one of them or in their conference, and they don't hold the same high standard, I happen to believe that this very book right here, the very words are inspired and preserved. That's the, the highest standard of inspiration and preservation. But when I preach for somebody that may not share every jot and tittle of that, and I preach for them, guess what? I do everything I can not to offend them. I don't compromise, but I don't offend them. And there are people who are wrong on certain issues or would differ on certain issues, but I don't throw in their face. I would sit down, <clears throat> sit down with them and lovingly share with them, but I would not cause them to stumble. So let's go back to verse number 16, let no man, whenever the, the Bible uses the word let, that means you have the power. So let no man, you have the power to do something about this. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in any respect of an holy day. That would be like an Old Testament ob observance of a feast day. Now there's nothing wrong with saying on the uh, Hebrew or the Jewish calendar, this is such and such a feast day and that 
is fulfilled in Christ in this way. Or that is fulfilled in prophecy in this way. That's all right for us to do that. That doesn't mean we have compromised and gone back to the law. That means we're showing what the fulfillment is in Christ. But for individuals to say, oh, you've got you to put on the garment, you've got to put on the... You've got to put on the yarmulke. You've got to, you've got to uh, go through all of the, the Jewish rituals. You've got to do it just like the Jews do it. Uh, in order uh, to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew. Wrong. That's wrong. Now, I'm not going to have a fight with people who are what we call Messianic Christians. Uh, they may or may not come from a Jewish background even, but they have adopted Messianic practices. The only way we adopt them is we show them fulfilled in Christ. Come on now. That's it. That's it. So don't let, don't let anybody judge you. Don't get in, embroiled and entangled in an argument over those things, all right, or in the new moon or the Sabbath days. There are groups today who will judge you, will judge us, because we don't meet uh, every week on the seventh day, the Sabbath, and I have pointed out in Sunday school last week, you can get the, the uh, CD or you can uh, pull up online and view it again. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. There is a difference between Saturday Sabbath and Sunday the Lord's Day. We gather on the Lord's Day. We are not Jews. And the Jews observed the Sabbath as a day of rest. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And we do honor and respect the first day of the week, which is Sunday, but it is not the so-called Christian Sabbath. Nobody changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. They are two separate days, okay? I hope you understand that. Amen. Amen. But we're not going to allow some group to judge us because we don't meet on Saturday for our services and they want to make up some scenario that is a made-up one that somehow some pope somewhere sometime changed the Sabbath, tried to, to, to blaspheme and change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. False, wrong, false teaching. All those things listed in verse 16 and more are shadows of things to come. And you can put this, uh, shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The shadow is representing Jesus Christ, who prior to the giving of those things, and those, those particular areas of symbolism, Jesus Christ had not yet come in His incarnation. Let no man beguile you, pull you away, draw you away, spoil you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Let's stop right there. Most angels ought to be offended because they get misrepresented. Around Valentine's Day, you get the little cards and you got... Little babies with little wings on them flying around. Supposedly they're angels. No angels ever look like that. Now maybe your little baby was, was a little angel. That's fine. But that's not a biblical angel. And you have, you have television programs touched by an angel and so on and so forth. And I'm not on a soapbox here. But what I'm telling you is every appearance of an angel in the Bible on earth was as a messenger from God and they appeared in the appearance of a man. Now, your cherubim and your seraphim, you know, they got some, some wings, but the rest of them didn't come with wings sticking out the back. So it's different than what 
we have had presented to us by traditionalists and by Hollywood and others. They had a problem in the Church of Colossae, and that is they, they got involved in, in all forms of spiritism, everything that was a little spooky. Now look, look this way. I talked about demons in the past. They are real. But every problem in life is not because of demons or demonism or Satanism. Satan is the god of this world. He is, he is the fallen archangel Lucifer. He's not all-powerful. He's very powerful. You don't want to go up against him or his demons without the blood of Jesus Christ, the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's, that's our defense. Uh, when, when demons come and start residing and messing up your house, your family, your life, what you, don't, you don't try to do it yourself. Well, here's what you do. Uh, you call 911 and get the, the spiritual policeman, Jesus Christ, to come and he'll take care of them. He'll, he'll get rid of them. That's it. That's what we have to do. We have to give it to Jesus. Don't you try to take care of it yourself. But don't become so enamored with the concept of demons and angels that that's all you think about. There is an unseen world. And everything that we see that's material is part of our world, but there's also an unseen world. And behind every conflict and behind every sin and problem, there, there is this battle going on. But Jesus Christ has already won the victory. We look to Him and we claim that victory in and through Jesus Christ. If we become so taken with the spiritual battle that that's all we think about, then we're going to become ineffectual. We're, we're going to be sitting on the bench. We don't need to be sitting on the bench. Yes, every day you get up and you pray and you put on each piece of the armor in Ephesians chapter number 6 and you put on the whole armor of God, you pray and you, you pray for the fullness of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 and you wield the sword of the Spirit and uh, you pray for a hedge of angels about you but then don't become totally sidetracked by the presence of the angels and by the presence of the armor of God and by the fullness of the Holy Spirit because you will miss the mark. And that is, here's our target, to make ourselves available to bring glory to Jesus Christ who provided all of that for us. We want to be able to speak a, a fitting word at the right time. We want to be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. We want to be ready always to stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. And instead of getting sidetracked about, wow, that's shiny armor. Wow, that fullness of the Spirit, that feels great. Wow, that sword of the Spirit, ah, it's sharp. I can wield that. Instead of becoming taken with the glimmering, shimmering aspects of what I've just described to you, we just go on and do what we're supposed to do. We just determine to be in the place where God wants us to be and not get sidetracked. Come on. Now, that's good preaching. We don't want to become enamored with angels. Voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. This is a monastic, like monastery, a monastic kind of spiritism where a person wants to become a mystic, they just want to feel the feeling and rise above instead of functioning in the real world. I know that there's a great deal to look forward to in the sweet by and by, but we're dealing with the nasty now and now. Everybody's got that. Come on. We're dealing with the nasty now and now. 
Sweet by and by is coming. Praise Jesus. All right. So watch out. Don't, don't allow that to happen because what uh, eventually will come from that, <clears throat> intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. A person who's all taken with the spirit world, a person who is taken with monastic, and if I can just, if I can just you know, rise higher, if I can just whatever, in, in a feeling sort of way, uh, eventually they'll say, oh, my experience. I want to talk about my experience. Look at me. I do not want to spend much time talking about my experience. I would rather spend all that time talking about my Savior. Oh, when God touched me, He did this and lifted me up and I just felt so good. I don't want that. What I want is to talk about Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, my Savior, the great I am, the beginning and the end. I, amen, and He is the amen. I want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to talk about what I feel like. When we sing and we praise the Lord, number one, our songs should be to the Lord. To the Lord. Number two, about the Lord. Number three, about how we feel. That's the way, that's the proper order. And if we, can, if we can allow the Lord to straighten out our thinking on this, it's going to save us a lot of time sitting on the bench. I want to get off the bench. When I was a kid coming up, talk about competition, I wanted to get off the bench. Give me the ball. Give me the ball, coach. Give me the ball. Finally got off the bench, got in the backfield. I was just a little bit of something. I wasn't anybody or anything. My dad and my big brother were sitting up in the stands. There was snow on the ground in Minnesota. We were wearing equipment, cast-off equipment that was probably 25 years old. And it, it, was, it smelled like 25 years old, too. We put on all that stuff. I had, I had football britches on, I think, that were made out of canvas. That's how old they were. I think that, that girdle that you put around here and the, the piece that protects the tailbone, I think mine was made out of cardboard. I mean, it was, it was ancient stuff. And so I could barely move. The spikes they gave us to wear, the spikes were a minor, minor part of the spikes. Those things were so heavy and in the mud, sloshing around in the Midwest in a snowstorm, I could hardly get my feet out of the mud. Our coach was Steve Silyanov. He had been a CIA operative behind communist lines. I'm not kidding you. And he came and he taught social science and he was a great American, and he was our football coach. And he had us running a single wing. All you football aficionados, you know, the single wing, that's kind of back uh, before the uh, Industrial Revolution. It was an, an old, old kind of way of running a, a football program. But uh, there I was. I was way out there. I was right halfback, way out there. And we had slots. They would be numbered out. And uh, standing back at left halfback would take a direct snap, uh, like uh, some quarterbacks do now when they're in the shotgun. He'd take a direct snap, take a jog step, and then pick a hole and go up through the line. And uh, he was All-American. But I'm out there, not an All-American, and, uh, and the call comes in from the bench, from Coach Silyanov. And he said, I want a, want a 40, and he, he called the number, what he wanted, a 40... 42, 46, whatever it was, re reverse. And that meant that the snap would go back to the left halfback. He'd come this way. He would hand it 
to the quarterback who was right here, and the quarterback had put out his hand, and I'm coming this way, and I would take it and, and go around and find whatever hole that was and go. And my, my dad and my brother sat up in the stands watching this in the snow for the longest period of time till I finally got the call, and I went in. And silly enough, I, I didn't hear him say this, but I was told later, he said, let's see what Winnegar can do. Down, set, hut, 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 hut. I take a jog step this way. Try to fake out that, that defender right there. Start running this way. The ball gets handed this way, gets handed to me, and around the corner. And I cut in and I cut out, and I went for a touchdown. And uh, my brother had to hold my dad down. He was jumping up and down saying, that's my boy, that's my boy, that's my boy. This world affords us the opportunity to take the ball and run with it. And when you get that chance, you don't fumble. You don't make a wrong step inside. If I'd stepped inside instead of jogging outside, those, those linebackers and those defensive backs would have brought me right down in a crunch. But instead, I took a step this way and went that way, and they were standing there trying to figure out which direction and where to go. And I ran for a touchdown that time because that was my opportunity. That was my time to carry the ball. You and I wake up every single day with an opportunity to take the ball in whatever venue that God places us. And we can be a witness and we can do something for God and for eternity or we can fumble the ball or we can say, you know, I don't want to get off the bench. It's too much bother. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. For that cross-reference, for verse 19, we need to go back to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we have a reference to the gifts that God has given each and every one of us. When you got saved, when I got saved, God imparted to us as a gift of the Spirit. And that gift of the Spirit is one of the uh, 19 that are listed and the ones that are still operative in this day and time that we can use to serve God in a spiritual way. We need to discover it, develop it, and use it. God gave apostles and prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, verse 11, verse 12, for the perfecting, for the completing of the saints. That's what we want to be. Complete, complete saints that are serving the Lord efficiently for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, all hooked together. Fingers hooked to the hand, hooked to the wrist, hooked to the forearm, to the elbow, to the upper arm, to the body. Everything connected in the body. That's it. Jesus Christ is the head. We are the body parts according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You and I are part of something greater than ourselves. We are part of the body, and Jesus Christ is the head. And as the Scripture has said here in Ephesians and back there in Colossians, as we have read, from which all the body 
by joints and bands having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. God has a plan. God always intended for this body to be a functioning body. God always intended for us to be effectual or effective. But we're not going to be effective when we're not connected to the head. We're not going to be effective when we are battling rather than cooperating one with another in service for God. And when there is some false teaching that has entered into our midst and becomes a prominent false teaching that causes people to sit out in the business of doing the will of God, then we've been put on the sidelines. I don't want that. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. And if necessary, the body needs to go forward, needs to go forward with whoever's connected and whoever's going to do right and whoever's going to cooperate and whoever's going to be controlled by and directed by the Spirit of God. I would say that to every person here. God wants every born-again believer to be involved in His work. And He's provided everything that we need to be effective at it. But if you're not going to be part of it, then what is Are you going to hold everybody back? You're going to sit on the bench and say, I refuse to go. I don't want to get in the game, coach. Don't put me in the game. When I was just a little kid, and I was nobody, I'm still nobody, but when I was nobody, the coach thought enough to try me out. I went in there and... Praise the Lord. I give Him the glory for, for whatever little that was and an accomplishment. But I was anxious. Here's the point. I was anxious to get off the bench. I was anxious to serve the purpose. Listen, I didn't put on those 20, 25-year-old pads and canvas britches and, and you know, five-pound spikes just so I could sit on the bench. I sure wasn't looking very pretty. I wanted to get out there and do something. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. It gave me the ball. And I didn't want to disappoint. How much greater a disappointment. Jesus Christ versus false teaching. When it's Jesus Christ in His way, in His will, in His strength, we win every time. Praise the Lord. Amen. We need to keep our eye on Him, our focus on Him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking. How many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something in the message spoke to my heart. Slip your hand up high. Something spoke to my heart. Amen. You want to get involved? You want to get committed? Amen. Just a moment, we'll have a chance for a word of prayer. And you can commit, recommit, and praise the Lord. This week we can talk to somebody about Jesus. We can do the work of God effectively. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that right now? Pray something like this from your heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. Right now, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. And if you prayed that prayer and meant it, would you slip your hand up, anyone at all? We're going to...
short it, say amen.